Hey, it's Halloween. I get to dress up too, right? You would never be able to pay attention if I kept this on. So uh, we're, we're borrowing our theme for this series from the uh, Disney Plus series, The Mandalorian. And uh, the phrase in particular, this is the way. Uh, one of the things about the, the Mandalorian series is that the Mandalorian people have a specific uh, armor that they wear. Uh, made of a specific Mandalorian iron or something like that. Uh, so in addition to all of its gadgets, it protects them. Uh, it's supposed to be especially strong in, in, in protecting them when they're in battle. And the most iconic part of their outfit is the helmet uh, that the Mandalorian wears. Shout out to uh, Hayden Weaver right here for uh, letting me borrow his helmet. Um, the Bible uses this imagery of what we wear or what we put on or how we clothe ourselves uh, multiple times in the New Testament, uh, kind of different targets sometimes, sometimes different applications. But the idea of what we put on metaphorically are, are the characteristics that we put on, virtues that we put on, as well as characteristics and virtues that we put off are significant uh, in the New Testament, uh, what, what we uh, are wearing. For example, uh, in one part, the New Testament talks about putting on armor, uh, putting on a helmet at one point, putting on a, a belt and shoes, and, and there's metaphors that go with each of those articles of clothing, but uh, often it, it's just what you wear, what, what clothes you put on, which if you think about it, is a smart analogy because uh, everybody can relate to this, this imagery. It's Halloween, so uh, many of your kids came to church this morning, they had put on a costume, right? Some of them simple onesie zip up, they look great. Some of them have props and wigs and, and hats and teeth and glasses, all sorts of things. Some of them have... Uh, um, Costumes that inflate, like all kind of crazy costumes. Your kids know what it's like to put something on. Some of you put on your Braves gear. Go Braves. Some of you put on your Braves gear to come to church this morning. We get it. It's a simple, common metaphor. All of you put on something, right? I appreciate that. I really do. All of you put on something to come to church this morning. And, and uh, that makes me a lot more comfortable uh, being here. We get it. Putting on clothes is, is something everybody relates to. When a friend invites you out, one of your first questions is, what should I wear? Or like, what's the dress code? Can I wear jeans? Uh, can I wear a t-shirt and, and shorts? When you're, uh, to your kids, especially the younger they are, you say, put on your shoes. We're leaving in five minutes, right? Find your shoes. Put on mismatched shoes. I don't care. Just find shoes. We have to go. Husbands say to their wives, how long is it going to take you to get dressed, right? Wives say to their husbands, are you really wearing that, right? We have this conversation of what we put on, what we wear. And so the New Testament writers, they borrow this imagery and say there are spiritual characteristics that you need to put on 
And, and, and once you've come to Christ, there, there are other attitudes you need to put off. There's a way of looking at the world that you need to put off so that you can put on a new way of looking at the world. There's a way of talking that you need to put off now that you're a follower of Jesus who's walking in the way. And there's a way of talking that you need to put on. There are attitudes you need to take off because they're part of your old person. And you need to put on new Attitudes, really common all throughout the New Testament. I, I want to deal with one of those today, and it's one that Jesus talked about a lot. As a matter of fact, that when I started looking for examples of Jesus mentioning this, I was surprised at how often he came back to this subject. It wasn't the only subject he talked about, and maybe not one he talked about the most, but it's very consistent in his teaching. And then after his life, the rest of the New Testament writers, Peter and James and Paul, and they all picked up on this and came back to it at some point. I, I want to give you an example from 1 Peter. This is almost at the end of your Bible. So if you have your physical Bible, you're trying to find it, go to the end and back up. There's two letters from Peter, First and Second Peter. We're in 1 Peter. This was a letter that was going to be circulated to a lot of believers and a lot of churches uh, that were in uh, the Middle East at the time. He's getting ready to end the letter, and I'll give you the context of where we are in just a second. But in verse 5, I'm going to start halfway through verse 5. Peter writes, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Peter says, this is something you need to put on regularly. You need to put on humility. No exceptions, right? All of you, everybody who's hearing this, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. Right before he makes this comment, Peter's been talking about church leadership and characteristics of leaders and qualities and virtues that should be evident in the life of someone who is a, a spiritual leader. And at one point he said, look, if you're not the leader, you're in the organization, assuming the leaders are giving evidence of those characteristics, assuming they're the kind of leader that God, uh, uh, that, that, uh, God approves of, you should submit to that leadership. Like you, you should encourage that leadership. But after saying that, then Peter kind of broadens the scope of his message. He just said, hey, hey, hang on. All of you, all of you should clothe yourselves with humility to one another. No matter who you, it doesn't matter what position you're in or if you have a title or, or if you're a spiritual leader or a pastor or a CEO or anybody, all of you, your title doesn't exempt you from relating to one another in humility. All of you, clothe yourselves, put on humility. Now, a little time out, this is not a part of the message, but um, this command, I think, uh, applies to every area of our lives, except when it comes to the way we view the Houston Astros, right? Like, I'm a, I'm a little upset with God that this message landed on the potentially World Series clinching Sunday. Like we could have talked about humility another time. But in reality, humility doesn't mean that I, I, I can't be fulfilled after an accomplishment. 
Humility doesn't mean that that I I can't have a sense of accomplishment when I achieve a goal or or when I overcome a challenge. It doesn't mean that I can't celebrate when something good happens in my life or, 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 or when I'm able to accomplish something in my life. It doesn't detract from that. Uh, what does it mean? How do we get at this idea of humility? And here's what I would suggest. Humility starts with, I think, humility requires self-forgetfulness. Like that, that's, that's the starting point. Humility requires self-forgetfulness. And, and that's not easy because the self doesn't die easy. Right? The self doesn't forget itself very easily. The self is motivated to promote itself, to inflate itself, to always put itself first. Self-forgetfulness, this is humility. I don't have to be first. I, I don't have to always be heard. I don't always have to be the loudest voice or the, or the first one. I, I, I don't always have to be at the center. Humility begins with self-forgetfulness. When I can let go of that, uh, there's a quote that is <clears throat> often attributed to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis actually didn't say it and didn't write it. I will judge you if you post it and attribute it to C.S. Lewis. It, it's more Rick Warren paraphrasing something he thought C.S. Lewis said. Uh, Rick Warren put it in one of his books. And it's this phrase. It's um, humility is not thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. I just don't think of myself all of the time. I am not the center of everything about my life. I, I, I think of myself less. I'm not focused on myself. Self demands that position in our lives. It really does. Self demands to be first, to be front and center, to be cared for. Humility is self-forgetfulness. I'm going to set that aside because... If myself is first and center of my life, I have very little margin to care about yourself. I have very little margin to listen to you. When I want my voice to always be heard first, it's very difficult to get around to listening to what you have to say or what you're going through or what you're experiencing. I've got to push self to the side. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. I have to take myself and bring it down the ladder a little bit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. It's the idea, the, the word translated selfish ambition, is the idea of rivalry, conflict enmity, competition. Like this is what pride does to us. This is what arrogance does to us. It leads to conflict. When, when my opinion always has to be first. When I always have to be first. When, when I'm always concerned with me. That's, that's always going to lead to rivalry. It's always going to lead to conflict. In James chapter 4, He uses the same quote that Peter uses, uh, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But he uses that phrase in the middle of a discussion of conflict. 
At the beginning of the chapter, uh, James says, why are you in conflict with one another? Have you ever thought about that? Why do you quarrel so much? Is it not because you want something that you didn't get? Or you didn't get something that you thought you deserved? Or you want to be first? Or you feel like you're not getting uh, the attention that you were supposed to get. You aren't experiencing the pleasures of life that you think you are deserved to experience. Doesn't conflict come from the fact that your life is about you so much? And then he uses that phrase. God, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. You, you have to take your eyes off of you. C.S. Lewis actually did write this. Pride always means enmity. It is enmity. It is is conflict. Pride always is. That's what it is. It's what it results in. And not only enmity between man and man, person to person, but enmity to God. There's there's always conflict when pride is present. If you wonder why so many people are in conflict with one another right now, this is it. Like This is the answer. If you wonder why there's so much quarreling in our world today, this is the answer. It's because our world is filled with pride and arrogance and self. And there's very little humility. And the Bible's right. C.S. Lewis is right. I mean, pride, arrogance, it's always going to lead to conflict. It's always going to lead to enmity. It's always going to separate people because you both can't be first. You both can't win. We both can't be seen to the degree that our, our hearts are both satisfied if that's what we're after. We're living in a time when, when people seem to be very full of themselves. Right? Whereas Paul said, consider others as more important than you. Value not just your interest, but value the interest of others. There seems to be a huge vacuum in that column. Uh, so some people have described the time that we're living in as the death of expertise. Like, like my opinion is right about everything regardless of how smart the other person is, right? Or, or, or how infinitely more qualified they are on this subject matter. I know more than they do. People have described the time we're living in as the death of expertise. We don't believe anybody's opinion but our own. What we think. What we've decided, the conclusions that we've come to, our thoughts, our opinions are at the apex of our lives and our minds. What, what I think is first. And then I evaluate everybody else's opinion based on what I've already decided is right. That's, that's pride. And, and that's why I, C.S. Lewis is right that the enmity, that con- the conflict that comes from pride is not just person to person, it's person to God. Because if my opinions are always right, I don't have room for God to challenge my opinion. I don't have room to consider what God thinks about a subject because I've already decided that what I think is right about every subject. I'm at the top. I'm first. And typically what happens is we then begin to create God in our image, so that God thinks all of the thoughts that I think. And God never challenges my thoughts. And God never says, hey, you might be wrong about this. 
Hey, you might need to apologize for this. Hey, you might need to humble yourselves. I create God, a God who thinks exactly the way I think about everything. Apostles, don't do this. Do nothing out of this selfish ambition that's driving you, this pride, this arrogance, this creating conflict and quarrels among you, or vain conceit, just, just empty pride, pride for no reason hollow glorying and how smart I am or, or how much better I am than everyone else. Paul says, don't do that. Instead, value somebody else. Think about somebody else's opinion. Give space to listen to someone else. And then there, after Paul says this in Philippians 2, he gives the ultimate example of Jesus. He said, as you're thinking about this, as, as you're Pushing back on the idea of putting somebody else ahead of yourself. Can you remember what Jesus did? Jesus set aside his power when he came to earth. He set aside his authority. He, he set aside demands. He set aside his rights. He set aside his position. He set aside his title. And he came. He emptied himself of all of that. Why? For us. For us. So, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could know God. Jesus, in humility, sets aside who he was as God in order to become human. And Paul says, that's the way you're supposed to live, with an emptying of yourself. Jesus describes himself in this way in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And then Jesus gives himself a description. And here's the description Jesus gives to himself. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. That's who Jesus is. I am gentle and humble and you will find rest for your soul. This is the way. This is the way of Jesus. Gentle and humble. There's a moment in Matthew 20 when two of his disciples get their mom to go to Jesus and ask if when Jesus establishes his kingdom, can they be co-vice presidents? Can one sit on his right, one sit on his left? Mommy, will you go ask Jesus if we can be big shots in the kingdom of heaven? And she does. She asks Jesus, can, can my little boys, can they sit beside you? Can they be important people? And Jesus, in his response, says, look, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. This is the way the kingdom works. The kingdom does not work according to position and title and power and authority. The kingdom works according to humility and serving. If you want to be great, you got to serve. This is the way of the kingdom. Luke 22, Jesus says to his disciples, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you shall be like the youngest. And in that day and age, certainly children had the least power. You know, in, in some ways, they were considered property. They, they had no power. They, they, they were the least of society. Jesus says, you want to be great? You got to be like the least. 
and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, like the one who orders the food and pays for the food? Uh, Isn't that a notch above the person that's serving and cleaning up the dishes? Well, of course. And Jesus says, but I'm among you as one who serves. I, I didn't come to sit at the table. I came to serve people. I came gent, gentle and, and humbly to serve other people. But, but Jesus says to his disciples, this is not the way the world's going to operate. When you look at the way the world operates, you will see that people hold to positions, a title, and authority, and what they deserve, and what they demand, and what they expect, and what their right is, and who they are, and don't you know my name. People cling to all of those things, and Jesus said, you can't be like that. That's not the way of the the way of the kingdom. In the first century, uh, Greek culture, humility was not viewed as a virtue. Humility was not something to aspire to. It was seen as weakness. No one in Greek culture said, you know, the best thing you could be is humble until Jesus comes along and says, you cannot be like the rest of this world. You can't be. You got to give yourself away. You've got to value other people. You've got to walk in humility. 2,000 years later, we live in a society that does not value humility. Like what, whatever uh, people may say, our society does not value this virtue. We, we value harshness. At times, we value cruelty. And we laugh at demeaning, sarcastic comments. Jesus is still saying, you cannot live like the rest of this world. You can't be those people. You can't applaud that in your society. You have to walk humbly. Matthew chapter 18, the disciples again, it's it's almost a steady theme from them. The, The disciples again come to Jesus and say, who is the greatest? Right? Who's the greatest? The kingdom of heaven, who's the greatest? Which those are questions that we ask as humans, right? Who's first? Who won? Who's best? Who's strongest? Who's fastest? We ask those questions. Who's the greatest? Our our broken self has this unending need for exaltation. This unending need to be told, you're the greatest. You're the best. You're better than anybody else. You're first. You won that. Our broken self just pleads for, applaud me, look at me, clap for me. It's a bug in the system, right? It's a bug in the system of humanity. And the only fix is not getting more adulation. It's not winning every argument. That doesn't fix it. It's not proving that I'm right and you're wrong, proving that I'm better and you're not as good. That energy runs out of steam really fast. And what heals that part of my heart that, that wants the self to be congratulated is to know that I am accepted and loved and seen and known in Jesus. The creator of the universe knows me and has called me and has invited me into his way. All of the applause in the world doesn't fill up my broken self's need for more attention. Only in Jesus. 
does that happen for any of us? Who is the greatest? Jesus. And Jesus, again, brings a child up in front of them and says, guys, get over yourselves. Just get over yourselves. You're asking all the wrong questions. Because the kingdom of God is not about greatness in the way that you think it is. It is not about self-recognition in the way that you think it is. It's not about winning in the way that you think it is the kingdom of God. The way of the kingdom is to come as one of these. Humbly to Christ. I think one of the evidences, if you're looking for evidences for the amount of pride in our culture, in our society, is the amount of certainty everybody has. Have you noticed that everybody's just certain about things today? People just know things. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced this, I'm, this is the only way it could be. There's this overwhelming sense of certainty. And there's very little room for, you know, it's kind of a nuanced, complex issue. And there's, there's probably some sides to it. Or maybe we should wait a little longer and see. Or this has been debated for a really long time. And, and I think there's probably some right and wrong on both sides of the issue. We don't have those conversations as much anymore because everybody picks a side and they're certain that they're right. They're just convinced I am right. We're reading through the book of Job in our daily devotions. If you follow us on uh, the church Facebook page, uh, I post a devotion every day. And, and, and we're, we're about two-thirds of the way th- through the book of Job. And in some ways, it's exhausting. Right? If you've been reading with us, because it's just over and over again, Job's suffering. Job's heart's broken. And as these three friends, maybe they're friends, he has these three people who come alongside of him and they just dog him the whole time. Like, you have done something awful. You, you, you have sinned and say, you're a terrible person. The reason you're suffering, Job, is because you did something wrong. This is all your fault, Job. And they call him names and at one point, one of them just starts guessing. Like, well, I bet you did this one time in your life. That's probably, you bet you did this too. You probably did this. A lot of people mess up this way. And they're just convinced that they know what God's doing in Job's life. They're just certain that God is punishing Job. They've got God all figured out. And life and Job and everything, they are certain of their position. And finally, in chapter 26, Job just reminds them of all the things they don't know about God. And this is part of what he says. He, God, God spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. He covers the face of the full moon, spreading his clouds over it. He marks out the horizon on the face of the waters for a boundary between light and darkness. And Job's whole point in that chapter is to say to his friends, you don't know everything. You don't know how God does that. You don't don't know how God pulls that off? You're speaking with such certainty about what you know about God, what God's doing in my life. You don't hardly know anything about God. We don't know how he works all the time. We don't always see what he's doing. And and, And then beautiful verse at the end. This is how he sums it up. Job says, and these are but the outer fringe of his works. And my new favorite phrase, 
How faint the whisper we hear of him. How faint the whisper. We know some things about God, but you know what? It all adds up to it. It adds up to a faint whisper of what we really know about God. Can we walk in humility and not think that we know everything about God? We know what God is doing in this situation or that person's life. I'm not saying that we can't be certain about anything. That's not what I'm saying, whether it's life or or, or spiritual things or God. There's truths that we know. There, There are facts that are clear. I get that. There's just this realm, certainly with God, but in life in general, there's this realm where we don't know everything. We aren't in a position to to say with certainty some things. When it comes to God, we're... We have to live with the humility of, God, I'm trying to know you more. I want to learn more of you. I want to be in your word. But at the end of the day, all that I know is just a faint whisper of all that you are. I mean, it's just the outer fringe of who you really are. One day I'm going to know you completely. But when I'm in this life, I'm going to continue to walk with the humility of mind that says, God, I I don't know it all. I, I don't have it all. Figured out. I want to interact with other people, especially people who maybe don't agree with me. I want to interact from the standpoint of, you know, I, I don't know it all either. This is what I see. This is, this is what I understand. To have a humility of mind with other people. Arrogance encourages us to speak with certainty about really complex issues, whether they be spiritual issues or personal issues or relational issues or social issues. Well, maybe we, we need more humility in the way that we view life. It's interesting that both James and Peter, they use that phrase, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, and both of them, very shortly after, they talk about the devil. They, they talk about an adversary. They talk about the enemy. In, in James 4, 7, he uses that phrase about humility. And then right after that, he says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Peter, same thing. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And just shortly after, he writes, Be alert and of sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think the New Testament writers knew that arrogance is this open door for the enemy to be at work in our life. Pride is this open door. For the enemy to be at work in our relationships, be at work in our attitude, to be at work in the way we view the world, the way we interact with the world. The enemy loves to create conflict and pride is the perfect ground to create conflict. It's why you and I, with the help of the Holy Spirit, have to constantly check this issue in our heart. None of us are free from this particular sin. It finds its way into our hearts. It's not about being insecure. It's not about being introverted or being quiet. That's not what humility humility and pride are. Pride works its way into our hearts. And you and I, on a consistent basis, we have to look for it. We have to look for it in the way we speak to people. The way we think about 
people and our opinions of things. We have to look for it. And Peter says, that's why it's so important that you clothe yourself with humility. You put it on. And you don't just put it on once. Like you don't, you don't get dressed once and then you're good for the rest of the month, right? You get dressed every day. You put something on every day. Every day. I know it's fall and it's hoodie weather and you have a favorite hoodie and it's sweater weather and you, you, know, you pull the same comfortable thing on. But you do it every day, right? You put something on every day. Peter's saying every day you got to put humility on. The humility of Christ. You got to clothe yourself with humility because our world does not value this virtue. Our world will encourage you toward conflict. Our world will encourage you towards pride and arrogance and self. After teaching on this subject, after living out this subject for 33 years, Jesus comes to the night of his betrayal. And in the upper room, he teaches this one more time. The disciples all gather. Jesus takes a towel. He takes a bowl of water. He kneels down, washes their feet, which is not a custom of ours. Culturally, it's kind of outside of our realm. Um, And don't worry, we're not going to do it today. Uh, I know people get kind of nervous when you bring that up, thinking we're going to do something weird We just don't relate to this. Like foot wash, it's not necessary. But in Jesus' day, it it was the job of the lowest servant to wash people's feet. It was a nasty job, as you can imagine. Nobody wanted to do this. Nobody wanted to serve everybody else in this way. And on that night, Jesus takes a towel and a bowl of water, and he does the lowest job. To say one more time to his followers, this is how you are to be with one another. This is how you are to relate to one another. Not in power, not in who won, not in who's best, not in who's greatest. Who can be the servant of all? This is the way of Jesus. It is not the way of our world. It is not the way of our culture. It is not the way of our time right now. But it is the way of Jesus that we would put on humility towards other people. All of us would do that. All of us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for speaking again and again to this issue. Because we struggle with it too. Our our self demands to be recognized and wants to be right, wants to be heard, wants to be acknowledged, at times applauded. The self does not die easily. God, help us to resist the pull towards arrogance and pride. Resist the pull towards conflict and quarreling to the, the pull towards certainty over the things that we cannot be certain over. And to walk in humility to you, first of all. Kneeling before you. Yielding to you. Submitting our minds, our lives, our way to you. 
and then walking in humility to one another. We will stand out. We will be different in a world that values strength and at times harshness and cruelty. We will be different because this is the way of Jesus. I pray it in his name. Amen.